Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. Hi, this is J.R. Lowry, and this is Career Sessions. Today, my guest is Janine Hurt, who I first met when I was working in London seven years ago. Janine is the CEO of Innovate Finance, which is an industry body that represents and advances the global fintech community in the UK. Prior to joining Innovate Finance in 2015, Janine worked as head of corporate relations for Chatham House, the Royal Institute of International Affairs. Chatham House is an independent policy institute based in London whose mission is to help build a sustainably secure, prosperous, and just world. If you've ever heard the expression Chatham House rules, this is where it came from. Janine's earlier experience includes work for the Brazilian American Chamber of Commerce in New York and for the recruiting firm Michael Page. She also taught English as a second language in Japan and then worked as a supervisor and trainer for ITTI, the firm for whom she was teaching. Janine earned her bachelor's degree in English and political science from Boston College and spent a year abroad at Oxford while an undergraduate. She earned a master's degree in international relations from the London School of Economics. She, her husband, and child all live in London. Janine, welcome. Good to have you as a guest today. Thanks so much, JR, for having me. Yeah. So tell our audience a little bit about Innovate Finance, what your role is, and who makes up your membership. Yeah, absolutely. So I am CEO of Innovate Finance. We are the industry body for UK fintech and for global fintech based in the UK. We are a not-for-profit. We're a membership association, and we bring together fintechs from all verticals of innovation. So your more traditional plays like P2P, FX transfers, but also cybersecurity, insure tech, reg tech, and crypto as well. And then we also convene the large incumbent financial institutions that are looking to transform and disrupt themselves. And then we also bring many of the large consulting players, investors to the table, and then we connect that entire ecosystem into government and into regulators to really ensure that we're creating an environment here in the UK that allows innovation and fintech to thrive. Yeah, that's one thing that's really unique that's always struck me as being unique about Innovate Finance is that linkage into government. There's trade associations that sometimes will do a bit of lobbying. I mean, you have more of a obligation, if you will, to the UK government. It is. And it's very interesting because it goes back to our initial founding. So we were launched in 2014 off the back of a government consultation, but we were set up to be a completely independent entity so that we could advocate and lobby on behalf of the sector. But we have very strong relationships with all departments of government. So HMT, but also Bayes, DCMS, DIT, because it is so critical that we create and we work together to create that environment where fintechs can grow. We also work very closely with the regulators. So the FCA, the PRA, CMA, and PSR, because again, it's absolutely critical to make sure we have effective regulation that protects the consumers, but also enables some of these new entrants to provide these new offerings to the end consumer as well. Yeah, for you running this group, what do you think makes it 
different with this strong public policy mission that you've got relative to running a more traditional nonprofit? So I think there's something really special and really unique about the fintech community as a whole. And you have so many founders that have launched their companies or started up companies because they saw an opportunity or a niche in the market where they could make financial services work better for the end consumer. And so there is, in general, a feeling that fintech is making financial services more effective, it's making it more democratic, it's making it more inclusive, and at the end of the day, it's making it work better for everyone. Now, when we talk about the public policy angle to that, it is important that we talk and create the dialogue around fintech and the narrative around fintech and bring in that positive impact that financial innovation has on society more broadly. You know, we're just coming out of the COVID pandemic, a period where really we had more than anything, the COVID pandemic ultimately underlined how important technology is to every aspect of our lives. But particularly when it comes to financial services, we saw fintechs play a huge role in helping all of us navigate through that pandemic. And now we're sitting on the cusp of cost of living crisis, where in the UK we're expected really to see a drop in living standards more than we've seen in, I think, 70 years since record began. So it is imperative that we work as the financial innovation community to support all of us through this period. Yeah. And as you say, I mean, there's a tremendous amount that's happening out there right now that affects aspects of what you're trying to do in terms of that public policy piece. So I'm sure that's keeping you quite busy at the moment. Yes, it is. And it really is. And We've got a changing government here in the UK is shifting up and down a lot of uncertainty, a lot of instability in many cases. But the one stream that underlines all of that is this need to try and create a better environment for the end consumer and the individual on the street. And fintech has a very important role to play. So part of our role at Innovate Finance is to shine a spotlight on how fintech can play that role. So when we're talking about financial wellness, when we're talking about financial inclusion, when we're talking about financial health more broadly, both for individuals and consumers and SMEs, that is a crux and a large part of the conversations we have with government and with different policymakers as well. So apart from that public policy piece, there's a sales aspect to what you have to do too. You got to get corporate members to join. You have to seek other forms of financial support like any nonprofit does. Did you see yourself as a salesperson when you were earlier in your career? Yeah, it's a really good question. I've been in industry bodies or membership associations for a long time, nearly two decades. And I never really see it as sales because I feel like membership is slightly different because it is about the relationships you build. So if you can create a relationship where you're delivering the proposition and what you promised your members and your customers, then you are going to bring people to the table and you're going to grow and expand your business and expand your membership base. So for me, it's slightly different. There's always going to be a sales aspect, I think, in any role, but it's not so much this hard sales concept. It's more about developing those relationships, making sure you understand what your member needs and wants and how you can help them and then delivering on that. And by doing that, you will then expand and grow as an organization. So I think it's a softer sense in terms of business development, but it's very much down to the relationships. True. What are the challenges that are affecting you as an organization at the moment? Yeah, I think one of the biggest challenges, and it's also a reason that Innovate Finance is so unique, is our broad diversity of members. So we have everyone from your two-person shop that's starting up in a garage startup, and 
all the way on the other end of the extreme, we have the likes of your Schroeders and your Lloyds Bank and your JP Morgan. So making sure that we are able to cater across that broad diversity of membership is really important for us. We only let lobby and advocate for fintechs and for high growth, but we also think it's important to have the big institutions at the table when we talk about partnerships, when we talk about disrupting the incumbents, helping them and supporting them in terms of transformation as well. Even when you look at the high growth, we have the likes of Revolut and TransferWise and Monzo and many of the crypto players and Klarna as well. So making sure that we can cater to all of them on a public policy side, on an advocacy side, that's a lot of different areas and a lot of different verticals that we need to cater to. And we've only got less than 25 people on team as staff. Yeah, it's a small organization, and particularly given as you say, all of the different verticals, the DeFi, the insure tech, the reg tech, banking, capital markets, asset management. You rattled them all off earlier, probably better than I can right now. And so each of those spaces has their own unique things going on. There is a common thread of finance, but other than that, it gets pretty different pretty quickly. And you and your team have to keep your arms around a pretty broad (laughs) array of not just player types, but also sort of industry verticals. So what do you like most about what you're doing today? What's the part that's most enjoyable for you? It's always the people. So it's my team. We've got an amazing team of really passionate, driven, energetic people, but it's the members as well. I mean, the fintech community here in the UK, but globally has such incredible individuals driving it. And it's people that want to see change. It's people that are driven to see this change that again, as I said, are passionate And the energy that comes from this community is just a real pleasure to work in every day. So I love it. Yeah. And it's all about the people for me. Great. Let's go back to the beginning. So where'd you grow up? I know you chose Boston College. How did you end up at Boston College and why English and political science? So I grew up in Connecticut and New York, but I have an international sort of family. My father was a refugee from East Germany. I went to Switzerland, Mm. met my mom, and they then moved over to the United States where I grew up and was born and was raised there. I chose Boston College. I actually had looked at a lot of different universities and I did an away night or a sleepover night. So that I just fell in love with the atmosphere of BC. And one of the reasons I loved it so much was that it had a core component about volunteering. So almost everyone that gets accepted into Boston College has spent some time volunteering or doing civil service or uh, public service as well. And so there was really this strength of community at the school. And you could feel that just even from the first day. And I have to say, I've had an amazing time there. We've got our 20th reunion coming up this year. And I'm really looking forward actually to going back, but it was wonderful. Yeah. My most recent memory of Boston College is post Heartbreak Hill running down the hill (laughs) past the campus on the way into the city. And you're just thankful that you're mostly downhill from there. Yeah, exactly. Very true. Yeah. Yeah. And certainly from my time working at both Fidelity and State Street, huge Boston College contingents there in, in, yeah, it's, in both it's those just companies. It's like a bit of a family, right? It's a, it was a really nice place to be. Yeah. I enjoyed it. Yeah. A lot. Good. So then you went and taught English in Japan immediately yes. after school. So how did you end up there? Yeah, completely random. So I said after university, I really wanted to travel. I said, I don't really quite have the money to do as much traveling as I want to. So there was a recruitment session at Boston College for a Japanese company. It's the largest publishing company in Japan. 
and they were looking for individuals to come over and teach English. So I didn't speak a word of Japanese, really hadn't initially had any interest. And I went to this meeting and I got the job and I said, I'm going to go. And so I went over to Japan. I taught English for a year there. The idea was to stay there for a year. I was promoted through the ranks. It was a large company, about 10,000 people, but I had a phenomenal opportunity and was put in place as the lead cultural and corporate trainer for the whole organization. So stayed for four years, trained several hundred people every year, both on how to engage in the organization and how to teach other children, but also I was their cultural trainer. So when they first came to Japan for two weeks, I was their sort of lifeline for those two weeks. And I had a fantastic experience. So yeah, really met lots of people from around the world and also learned a lot of things about my own culture that I probably wouldn't have being in a different place. Yeah, it's true. When you're an expat, you hear your culture, your native culture reflected back at you, (laughs) sometimes in ways you don't expect. I've been particularly amazed how many people outside of the US are obsessed with the idea of driving Route 66. (laughs) This is so true. Yeah, absolutely. Very true. How did you find living in Japan when you were over there? You know, I learned so much and I really loved it. I think one of the parts that I enjoyed the most was the connection to nature that you feel when you're there. And the tradition, it comes out so strongly in every single day and this value for life and for nature. And I really, really enjoyed it. So yeah, I stayed three extra years than I had planned and it was a great experience. I think Japan at that time was also probably one of the most or maybe last most isolated places in the world. So 99% of the population in Japan at that point in time was Japanese. So being a foreigner was really different. And for my first year, I lived in a small town about three hours north of Tokyo. And I was probably the only non-Japanese in that town of about 200,000 people or so. And sometimes the young kids would see me and would scream because they'd not seen a white person before, which was always an experience. And sometimes the first couple of classes was just getting them used to my face. But, you know, those kind of experiences are amazing and once in a lifetime, really. So how did you do in learning Japanese? I was all right, not great, but I could get I could get by with a lot of gestures and I was okay by the end. I have to say now, though, I don't remember anything other than arigato and that's about it. So, yeah. Yeah, I've always heard it's a tough language to learn. It's very tough, especially if you're a visual. I think if you're a visual learner, because you have to spend so much time learning the characters as well. Right. So then you came here to London and you got your master's from London School of Economics So what drove that step in your career journey? Yes, I've always been interested in international, international politics, engagement, relations. I have, I said a bit about my background earlier, but I have American, British, Swiss and German citizenship and passports. And I am a real believer that it is so important for us to understand different cultures and different countries and for all of us to really look at how do we solve these massive societal issues by working together. And so that's what led me to go to LSE. I studied international affairs there, MSC. And it was, again, a phenomenal, phenomenal year. So I did a lot of work on the emerging markets. I did a lot of work on international organizations and institutions and negotiation and policy as well. And it was great. Met some great people, both in terms of my peers at the classes and in terms of the teachers there. So when you left LSE, then you kind of did something completely different. 
Yeah. Uh, you went off and worked for a recruiting firm, Michael Page. Yeah. What was that experience like for you? It wasn't a very long one, I know. Yeah, it was an interesting experience working at Michael Page. So I was in the team that was appointing senior risk officials, so CROs at some of the major banks in New York. Very interesting because it was around the time of the financial crash and the financial crisis. Yeah, I had some good people that I worked with that were on my team. It wasn't quite my niche, so I was happy to move on where I was able to work more in a role that was bringing industry together with policy and do some of the advocacy work as well within that. Yeah, and then you ended up at the Brazilian-American Chamber of Commerce, which also feels a little bit like an unexpected turn. Totally unexpected. And I had the most amazing five years there. It was just incredible. So I had done a bit in my master's degree, I had done quite a bit on the BRICS and the emerging markets there. So was actually very interested in Brazil in particular. And there was an opening at the Brazilian American Chamber of Commerce. And I went to meet with them. And the CEO at the time was actually Japanese Brazilian. And so we had a connection. She was asking me a lot about my time in Japan. And so I came on board. We were a really small team under 10. I had great opportunities there at at a younger age too, and was meeting with the ambassadors, with the president of Brazil. We met with the president of the US as well at that point in time. So it was uh, really exciting. Yeah, it was great. And I would also say, I keep going back to this being about the people, but the people that I worked with And the CEO at the time in particular were just phenomenal and really inspirational. So I enjoyed it a lot. I love the Brazilian culture, I will say as well. Now, where's your favorite place in Brazil? It's got to be Rio. (laughs) The Sambalistas will be annoyed with that, but it's got to be Rio. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Haven't been. It's still on my list. Oh, you've got to go. I will someday. What did you take away? This is sort of your first stint in a policy-focused nonprofit. So what did you take away from that that you've used in your career since then? I was very privileged to have one of my best mentors ever in terms of the CEO at the Brazilian American Chamber of Commerce. She was female as well and had come from different cultures, different backgrounds too. And she just really taught me to always give 150%. But she also taught me that so much about succeeding in business is really down to the people. And it's about the relationships that you make. And if you're authentic, if you're honest, if you're trying to find how you can support others, be those on your team or be those vendors or clients that you work with, you're much more likely to be successful, but also be content with where you are in terms of your professional development. So she has been a phenomenal mentor for me. That's great. And then you moved over here again to London and took up your job at Chatham House. Yes. So talk about what you did there. Yes. So I was leading corporate relations when I was at Chatham House, which some people will know of Chatham House because of the Chatham House rule, but it is the Royal Institute of International Affairs. It's one of the leading think tanks in the UK, more than 100 years old, and it has driven a lot of the documentation and the advocacy work that goes into government thinking. And on the corporate relations side, we also were a membership organization. So I managed all of the corporate engagement that we had across all sectors. So yes, financial services, but also oil and gas, different industries as well, feeding into some of the work that we did. So once again, it was the cross-section really between industry and policy, which has always been my passion, just like at the Brazilian American Chamber. Got to meet the Queen. That was lovely. I got to meet Melinda Gates and Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton when I was there. So again, a nice opportunities to meet with some really inspiring people as well. That's pretty awesome. So you've worked in public policy jobs, you know, that kind of cover the UK, the US and Brazil. 
what differences do you see across the three in terms of how they approach their public policy work and how the people in the public policy space work? That's such a good question, JR. And I probably, I'm going to focus on the US and the UK, because for me, one of the most interesting distinctions between here and in the US is that in the US, it's much more natural and fluid in terms of people moving between industry into government and vice versa. And you have less of the occasions where you have a permanent long-term politician or civil servant, so to speak, because we don't really have that model in the United States. And so in the UK, it's much more divided in terms of you have either those that have chosen to go into industry for their career and generally tend to stay in the industry. And then you have civil servants that have potentially never worked in industry before. And it's rarer to find those that have done both. So approaching then government and politicians and civil servants is done in a slightly different manner when you are in industry. And so that would be, I would think, one of the biggest distinctions or differences that I've seen between the two. I can only sort of speak from limited personal experience, but you just watch the way that these public policy debates happen here in the UK and the way that they happen in the US. And it stands in stark contrast in a lot of ways, especially right now. So then what led you over to Innovate Finance? Oh, well, I was tapped very, and I was at Chatham House, I had been doing quite a bit around this sort of financial inclusion, financial wellness piece. So Innovate Finance had just launched, it was 2014, and they were looking to create their leadership team and their management team. So I was reached out to by who was the CFO at the time. And I joined just a few really months after the initial launch of Innovate Finance and was part of the early team. And again, it goes back to the people, but our team that built and developed Innovate Finance from the ground up were, and still are today, some of my absolute closest friends. And we had an amazing experience in terms of creating Innovate Finance. We had a great leader at the helm, Lawrence Wintermeyer, that took over from Claire Cockerton as well. And at that point in time, there was just a huge focus on financial innovation. And it was this period of really recognizing that there is a way to make financial services work better. And there was a shining spotlight on so many of these fintechs that were starting to develop and grow and really taking market share and impacting the sector for the better. So it was quite an exciting period to be in. And we built Innovate Finance from the ground up. We went from around 50 to 300 members in two years and developed our whole proposition, our whole engagement and all of our policy and advocacy work from then as well. Yeah, I moved over the first time I lived in London, right at the beginning of 2015. So not long after you all got going on Innovate Finance, not long after Level 39 was formed and started attracting startups in to that space on Canary Wharf. And it was interesting because it felt like around the 2014 timeframe is when things just really took off in terms of the buzz around fintech Certainly people had been doing fintech for many, many years before that, but it just was sort of a rejuvenation of focus on the sector and a bunch of new topics, not the least of which was crypto and blockchain and all of that. But there were a lot of other things, as you know, as well as anybody that that really had their genesis, their early days in that time period back to 2014, when there was just a lot of venture money flowing into the industry. 
And I remember some of our conversations even back at that time, looking at how some of the larger organizations, the incumbent financial institutions were trying to also transform and create those partnerships and bring that in-house talent in as well. And some of that expertise. So it was a really interesting time still is, but really interesting at that point. Yeah. I mean, that you see it from the perspective of your corporate members and your startup members, that intersection how the big companies, when I was at State Street's a, a huge company relative to the size, certainly of these fintechs and bringing together a fintech firm and a bank the size of a State Street or gosh, not even a JP Morgan that's 10 times the size of a State Street in terms of number of people. I mean, it's culturally really, really different. Even when these people in the startups have come from some of the bigger banks, it's like their brains have completely changed in terms of how they think day to day and just getting everybody on common ground and figuring out how to actually get something done together, setting aside the investment piece, which is always somewhere in the conversation, but just figuring out how to actually get value out of the relationship and make it work and help them scale. It's hard. It's really hard. It's hard. And I'm sure that that dynamic plays out across other industries that are going through these big periods of technological upheaval with a thriving startup sector and how the big companies are interacting with them. So it was definitely an interesting time to be involved back in that sort of five, seven years ago timeframe. So when you look back, I mean, you've got a long way to go still in your career, but how would you say, have you been opportunistic? Have you been intentional? I mean, you've certainly conveyed a sense of being more opportunistic in our conversation thus far, but do you feel like there were things that were very much part of your goals? International relations focus might be an example of that. Yeah. So I think for me, the most important thing is I want to always work in a place where I feel comfortable to be me. And I want to work with people that inspire me and that are optimistic and positive and upbeat. Because I feel like we spend so much of our days in work and so much of our lives in work that why spend it doing anything else? So I've always wanted to be doing something where I feel I'm making a difference, but also with great people around me. In terms of sort of the opportunistic chance, I'm a big believer in taking risks. And I'm also a big believer in sometimes doing things that you might feel maybe not the most comfortable doing, but could lead to really positive outcomes. And I've done that even since when I picked up and moved to Japan and was slightly uncertain. I think I was 20 or so at the time. But I'm a big believer in taking a chance and seeing what comes out of that. And then whatever you do, commit to doing it 150% because otherwise, again, there's no point. So that's kind of been the underlying belief that I've always carried through. Yeah. And are you at a point now where you feel like you really know yourself and what you want to do and what's important to you? I ask this question of everybody. I get really interesting answers from people about how long it took them to figure this out. You know, I mean, I'm still early on in my career journey, but I would say I'm pretty comfortable with where I am because I'm also very open to saying I make mistakes. I'm a first time CEO, so I'm very open to learning from people. I think the only way you can be successful is if you learn from people and that's people that are ahead of you, so to speak, on the career ladder. So I have great relationships with my chair, Louise Smith, and my entire board and a lot of mentors as well. But I also think it's important to learn from people that are more junior than you because they bring different things to the table. And if you ever stop learning and stop trying to change, then I think you stall. And there's a saying, if you stay with the status quo, that's actually the biggest threat or the biggest risk. And I believe that is applied even in the individual sense as well. 
You had been with the organization for a while before you became CEO, but yeah. what was different? What felt most different to you when you became the CEO? I think firstly, there's a sense that I was COO for four years. I played a strong role, obviously, with my former CEO as well. But it is a different level when you're a CEO. Firstly, there's the responsibility of making sure everyone in your team is delivering, is enjoying themselves and is executing at the top. There's also setting that vision and really saying to yourself, what do I want to do with the organization or what kind of impact do I want to make in the time that I am leading it going forward? It also was interesting that I was appointed actually during COVID. So the sort of adjustment from bringing a company that had been now completely online back into the office over the last year has been a really interesting journey to take along there as well. But for me, it's more the sense of making sure that you have a vision in place and can deliver and execute on that and thinking about what you want to do and the impact you want to have in the short and the long term as well. Yeah. Are you willing to share any of the mistakes that you feel like you've made in your early days as CEO? So I think one of my Achilles heel in being CEO is I'm very sensitive. So I'm sometimes too sensitive. And there are instances where just have to make the decision. And sometimes it might not be necessarily a popular decision, or it may mean positive or negative things for certain individuals, but you have to make those decisions because it is for the benefit of the business, which then is for the benefit of all of the other employees. So I would say just making sure sort of having that ability was important for me. Yeah. And I think having conviction in what you're doing, you've thought it through, you're going to see it through. I see a lot of people who need more conviction. It's like one of those leadership traits that not enough people have, because if you can't make those tough calls, you are going to have to make tough calls Yeah, and you have to get yourself comfortable with having faith that you are doing the best you can, making the best decision you can and getting on with it. Yeah, And that's hard for people. It is. And actually you pointed on something else as well, because I think as CEO, it is sometimes a lonely job. And I can be actually an introvert and an extrovert because I love people, but I also like having my own time, but I really like connecting with people. And sometimes I'm very lucky. I have an amazing chair and she's incredibly supportive. So I think I couldn't be as successful without that strong relationship. But at the end of the day, I'm still CEO and have to make some of these decisions. And that can be sometimes a bit lonely. So I think that's one of the big distinctions between moving from the COO, where you have a CEO to talk with about things and almost right. to then moving into the CEO role. Right. You talked about your chair a few times, how do you interact with your board and how do you get value out of them and helping guide your path as an institution? Yeah. So I am so privileged because I've got an amazing board and I know not all CEOs can say that. So I'm really, really lucky. My chair is an absolute inspiration, Louise Smith. So she's come from industry, but has so much experience, is so passionate about culture, about driving positive culture, about diversity, about really financial wellness, financial health, financial inclusion as well. And we looked at our board and we said, where are some of the gaps that we need to fill? So we already have two phenomenal board members, Ian Anderson and Danny Lopez. Danny used to be consul general to the US. Ian ran Cicero Group and is now the exec chairman there as well. So we have that great background. And we said, we've got a couple gaps and a couple areas. So earlier this year, we brought on board Adam French, who was a former CEO of Scalable Capital and has understood what it's like to bring a company to real fruition and success. We brought on board Simon Lewis, who was a CEO of an industry body, AFME, for nearly a decade. 
He's also Gordon Brown's communications director. So he's got sort of that experience too. And we brought Yvonne Bajella, who's an investor through Impact X. So investing specifically into startups and some of those as fintechs. And then when we brought on Parveen Kaur, who is with Lloyd's of London as head of operations there. So really bulked out, making sure we had the fintech voice, making sure we had the industry body, making sure we had expertise on PR, expertise on international. It's a great board. Who else do you tap into So I guidance? So I've been really lucky in my career in that I've had a lot of mentors that I've worked with throughout the years. And many of those have been former CEOs. So I'm able to talk with them for guidance CEOs or CFOs in the past. The Innovate Finance alumni community, I have to say, is really Mm. important to me because we all came together at a time, developed something and just connected on such a high level. So I talk with a lot of them. They're all doing amazing things in different arenas. But also even some previous colleagues from the Brazil Chamber, other classmates and friends from London School of Economics or from Boston College, I've managed to keep a very strong network throughout the years. And I think that's really important that people do that. Because in those moments where you need different expertise or different feedback or just a different perspective, you can rely on the people that you trust. Yeah, it's very true. And it's easier than ever to keep your network up today. Yeah. And I mean, they also know your weaknesses and your strengths because it's important to know your weaknesses as well. And so the people that know you best will know that and will say, this is a weakness. (laughs) So on that topic, what are you working on developing in yourself? What's top of the list right now? So like I said, I'm quite sensitive. And I think part of that is coming through having lived in some different places, you become more sensitive to the differences and the adjustments. And there is some really great work that's been done on third culture kids. So kids that are growing up in countries where their parents aren't from tends to make them a bit more sensitive to nuances. And that is a strength, but it also can be a weakness. So Mm. making sure that I'm able to balance that out and take some of the tough calls and take some of the tough decisions when I have to as a CEO is something that I'm working towards. You've talked about people and team a fair amount in our conversation What do you look for in the people that you bring into the organization? What's most important to you? So you've got to have energy and you've got to have drive and you've got to be passionate, especially because we're a small organization. So I think potentially if you're in a larger organization, you need that less. But when it's small and when you really punch above your weight in the way that Innovate Finance does, you need everyone there to be someone who's giving 150%. And they don't have to be gregarious, they can be quiet, et cetera, but still giving that full 150%. I also really aim to make a diverse team. So people from different backgrounds, from different cultures, ethnicities, socioeconomic backgrounds as well. I think that's all very important when you're creating a high performing team and a small team. Yeah, especially given the size of the organization, as you say, every decision you make about hiring is really, really important because in most of those jobs, you've only got one of them. So they better be the right one. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah. Is there anything that you would do differently if you had to do something over again in your career so far? You know, I don't think so because I think I've learned from all the mistakes I've made. And yeah. I don't think I would be on the same path if I had changed or if I had done things differently. Yeah, it's hard to answer that question. I ask it of people anyway, but It's hard because if you really think about it, it's like, would you undo decisions that potentially led to serendipitous things, even if the decision itself 
wasn't one that you really look back on and say that was a good decision. Yeah. It's just hard to think that through. But like I said, I ask it anyway. What other career lessons would you want our audience to take away from the discussion? So I think there are two things that I've always really believed in my career. The first is to be kind to every single person. Mm-hmm. And I was reading something the other day that you says you can tell the culture of an organization by how they treat their cleaning staff or their reception. And I think that is absolutely true because no matter what someone does, they have as much of a right and are as equal as anyone else. So be kind to every single person, those above you, those quote unquote below you, et cetera, and respect everyone as well. And think about how they feel when you treat them that way. The second thing is I would say in every single obstacle, there's an opportunity. And in every single challenge, you can make something positive come out of it. That is core to the work that I've always done. I think it's really important that we believe that as a team also at Innovate Finance, but overall as a life lesson, I'm a big believer of that. Yeah, both good pieces of advice. Any final thoughts to share? No, I think just enjoy. If if COVID has taught us anything, really, it's about enjoying the people that you're with and who you spend time with. And life's too short. So make sure you love what you do would be my big choice. Or make sure it's at least on a path to get you to where you really love what you do as well. Yeah. And certainly a lot of people are feeling that way. Otherwise, we wouldn't have been going through this period of the great resignation, which ultimately is going to have to lead to the great whatever comes next. (laughs) Well, Janine, thanks. I really appreciate the time. Uh, It's good to catch up and hear a little bit more than I previously knew about your career journey. So thanks for making the time and have a good rest of your day. Thank you so much, Cher. We should do one where someone interviews you uh, to hear your your background as well. Others have suggested that at some point that will happen. Yeah. If you're ready to take control of your career, visit pathwise.io. And if you'd like more regular career insights, sign up on the website for the Pathwise newsletter and follow Pathwise on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks and have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.